Welcome to the Polari Podcast with me, Sophia Blackwell. And me, Paul Burston. Hello, Paul. How has uh, April and May been treating you in terms of the Polari online shows? They've been really great. They've been very conversational. The sort of chat show element to them has really grown over the past few months. It's developed. I think it's sort of bedded down. I think there was a period where adapting a live performative event into an online event there was some adjustment there's a period of adjustment and um, I think now it's kind of found its own place and the interaction between the writers on the show and in the green room in the you know before have before you go live to the to the zoom massive um, the sort of the pre-show chit chat between people is always very interesting to me Yes, it's been really enjoyable. I, I, I found it really great. I mean, it's been great fun. And also, you know, reaching people. I had a very sweet email from somebody after the last, the most recent one, who'd never been to, to an event before, and they emailed me to say that they'd booked for it, or they'd seen, seen it on Eventbrite and booked for it, and um, how much they enjoyed it, and also how it made them feel connected. And they, they were a gay guy living in a remote part of the country, never been, not, not in a big city. And you sort of forget how so many of us, even those of us who usually have access to a physical LGBTQ world, um, you know, living in a big city like London or Manchester or Newcastle or whatever, you know, we, we haven't had that the last year. We, we've, all, we've all been in our little, well, in isolation. And that was a theme that's been discussed a lot during the events off and on by different people. And it was one of the themes, I think, that kind of, speaks to the audience that we're getting now. I think there's people tuning in who wouldn't otherwise come to an event and they're at home and they've got, they're feeling a lack of connection. And so I think it offers that. So I think it offers a sort of, you know, a little LGBT world that they can tap into, which I think is, you know, I think it's very easy when you're somebody like me who's lived most of their life in the midst of that world. It's very easy to forget what it felt like before when you when you didn't have that access to that and you were felt very isolated and i think many people for for various different reasons to do with geography to do with um abilities to do with disabilities to do with cultural backgrounds all kinds of reasons feel less of a connection so being online has kind of offered another another way of connecting with people and i think it's been one that it's, it's it, i i i just feel it i feel it developing month on month with the, with the feedback i get and the people you know the returning the returning audience members and the people that every month there's somebody else who's not been before yeah we had um musa kwonga um elizabeth shakrabarti and nikita gill elizabeth read once at southbank as did musa and nikita read at Polari in Heaven last year, last um, last February 2020. So they're people I, I've worked with before um, and they're all people that are very, I, I find very interesting as writers because they write about experiences that I don't have. And one of the, one of the great things about books and reading is that you get, you might, you, you're able to walk in somebody else's shoes and think inside someone else's head, see their, see their worldview. And, these are all writers that that managed to show you that without ever without ever you never feel reading those reading their books that you're being taught anything you know what i mean i can't bear i can't bear when something is really obviously teaching you a lesson um but they just they're very immersive writers and they sort of take you into the worlds that they've created and 
by reading those books and engaging with those writers, you can learn a bit about people's lives outside of your own. It's interesting also that both of the works of prose uh, discussed in the April show are kind of hybrid works. If we put aside the, you know, the memoir, one of them for, for a moment, the, uh, you know, and interestingly, they, they both also have love in the title. So in the end, it was all about love as a mix of memoir and fiction. Um, and Lessons in Love and Other Hate Crimes is sort of a cross between a thriller, uh, a memoir and an, an academic work. It's a, it's a really interesting piece of work. How did the interview part of it with um, Elizabeth Chakrabarty go and how did she describe the book when she was talking about it? Well, she spoke, she spoke about that very thing. She spoke about the fact that it is a hybrid work, um, that she needed to, to, to work out how she was going to write about the experience. I mean, we, we, we have something in common, which is that I also was a victim of what you'd broadly call a hate crime, and I, I turned it into a novel. So we, we spoke about the process of that. My default position for processing something like that um, is to fictionalise it. And that's my way of, of kind of exercising it through fiction. And she, she knew that she was going to write about her experience at some point. She wasn't sure how to do it. And what she settled on was a kind of hybrid um, where, whereby there is a, there's a fictionalised account involving a, a character who isn't her, and yet at the same time it's also clearly very autobiographical. But then, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny one because, you know, so many people's first novels, I mean, that, that's the cliche, isn't it, that everyone's first novel is basically a thinly disguised autobiography, and I think there's some truth in that. Um, and certainly, I've, I've certainly read a lot of first novels which are clearly yes, somebody's yes. thinly disguised autobiography, um, but I think, you know, to, to, to take, what, as she has, a specific incident or a specific series of events that illustrate what it feels like to be a person of colour in a racist environment and to explore that in the way that she has is, 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 is a much more ambitious and clever thing than simply writing a, a novel which is basically your memoir. It's a very specific story. It's a very specific situation that she's, that she's dealing with. Um, and it, there's a precision about it. And I think the fact that it has that kind of academic, semi-academic, no, the academic qualities and the, the notes and the, the afterword and the foreword um, all lend, lend themselves to that. So welcome to Polari Live Online. My name is Paul Burston. I've been running Polari events since 2007. Polari is a live showcase for LGBTQ plus writers. Tonight, I'm joined by three writers whose work explores questions of love, hope, identity and belonging. Nikita Gill is a poet and writer. She has published seven volumes of poetry and has been described as one of the most exciting young writers working today. Her latest book is called Where Hope Comes From. Musa Okwanga is the author of several fiction and non-fiction books, including Striking Out. In the end, it was all about love and one of them. He lives in Berlin, where outsiders feel at home. And finally, Elizabeth Chakrabarty is the debut author of Lessons in Love and Other Crimes, which is a hybrid work of fiction and non-fiction and deals with the impact of hate crime. Welcome, Elizabeth. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and what inspired it, please? 
my book was inspired by experiencing serious race hate crime over a number of years in the workplace. I knew I had to write something about this and it, it took me some time to work out how I might write it, but, but definitely it needed to be through fiction. Um, but as you said, a hybrid, um, a hybrid book um, with it, within its heart, a novel about race hate crime. It is, it is a hybrid work. So um, I've constructed it with two opening essays. They're what we might call critical race memoir. They explore racism that I experienced from a very, very young age. And they build to the point autobiographically where I decided I wanted to write fiction about this particular race hate crime. So I'm gonna read the end of these essays and the beginning of the novel. So instead of dredging up all the memories that make me anxious even now, I could use only the specifics of the race crime I experienced, explore the theme of racist crime in a genre fiction way, have a detective or a character eventually finding out who's behind it, and perhaps get the perpetrator arrested. Then I could use the theme of love, despite hate, to counter the crime plot, a relationship keeping the protagonist going despite what's happening in her workplace. The ethnic minority characters will be in the foreground, the victim, people who care about her and that she cares about too, like a best friend, a parent figure, and perhaps siblings, and the love interest. Or will the love interest be white, like the majority of people she comes into contact with in her professional life? Yes, a white love interest would complicate the racial dynamics, not to do to white characters what white writers do to ethnic minority characters. The other white characters would be a faceless aggressor, colleagues, and a character blurring the themes of love and hate. Perhaps a seemingly helpful white saviour figure, a well-meaning manager, plus other minor white characters encountered in a professional setting. So, the main character won't be me, though she'll be a bit like me for what happens to fit the character. She'll be looking forward to a new job in academia, but she's not naive. She's experienced usual day-to-day -day racism. She just won't expect what is, what's about to happen to her, the crime. Then there's the question of how it ends and whether there might be justice. Now, where to begin? A title, a chapter heading and the opening that's often a teaser of what's to come, implying where we'll get to once we know the victim and that there will eventually be a body. But to begin, the title, something like Lessons in Love. When you decided to write about this subject, was it cathartic or was it sort of re-traumatising or was it a mixture of both? It was a mixture of both. It's been an amazing kind of release because it, I feel like I've put it somewhere and um, um, obviously I don't want to give away what happens, you know, in, in the book, but I've produced something that is a record, albeit fictional, um, although the race hate crimes that I describe in the book are specifically um, what happened to me. I mean, obviously some of them, uh, but I mean, just some of them, I, did, I didn't write about all of them. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think during the writing and even during the editing and the rewrites in the past year during the pandemic, it's been quite traumatising to come across it again 
even in my own writing. One of the advantages perhaps that that creative people have is that we're able to turn those experiences into into pieces of art whether it's whether it's by a painting or writing or whatever it is that your medium is I think there is something incredibly therapeutic about being able to turn something awful into something beautiful. To write about this subject of racism for me has been cathartic in 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 that sense of recording and finding a way finding a way in fiction and in autobiographical writing a mixture of the two to actually say uh, this is how it feels. This is how it impacts on your life. But also, yeah, I, I agree. There's something about producing an artwork, a piece of art that is, you know, that, that will go out into the world is amazing. And yeah, I, I, I felt really fortunate that actually, you know, I knew that I had to write about this. And um, I was very glad when, you know, my agent found a publisher that wanted to take it on. Let's go over to Berlin now and to Musa. Um, I haven't seen you, Musa, since you read at South Bank. I think it was six, maybe six or even more years ago. I can't remember when it was. It's- yeah, that's right. I don't even own those clothes anymore. I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> a blue sweater which I haven't seen in about five years. So yeah, I have a new wardrobe just for you, just for you. How does life in Berlin compare to life in London? Um, I'm getting out about as much as I would in London. Yeah. Uh, I'm about two months further away from the vaccine. So yeah, I've gone back in time, I think. Joking aside, it's an incredible city. It's a very queer city. Even the straight guys here, like I've got straight friends who will happily go, straight male friends will happily go to a gay bar, a queer bar for a night out as their first choice drink. And in fact, it was really funny. A couple of my friends, my friend Sasha was so funny. He was like, oh, let's go to that bar again. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, you know, Mobilufa, he goes, yeah, yeah, let's go there. Oh, you know, you know, it's a gay bar. He goes, yeah, yeah, I was there last Wednesday and the guys were checking me out. And he felt so flattered to be checked out because this is the thing, men don't get checked out in a very flattering way. So to get male attention to him as a straight guy was like, that's just really nice. So, so going to this bar and he was more excited than I was. And he's like, it was really adorable. He goes to this bar and this, these guys are like, oh my God, he's back. And he was like, he was like a kid. And I was like, that's Berlin. Berlin, just a lot more queer. I couldn't really imagine that. My close, straight friends in London, it's much more, it's still a bit more segregated, I have to say. Actually, just before I, before I do a reading, I have to just say, um, it's funny because friends come, they visit Berlin, they're like, oh, I'm coming to Berlin for a wild weekend. And I'm always like, how wild? There's wild and there's Berlin wild. And I'm not sure. And they're like, okay, um, we're just coming for a few drinks. I like, okay, good. Because we can do the other thing if you want. We can do that, but you have to be ready for that. Ah, ah. While the focus of Polari Online in April was largely speaking about Musa's memoir from Unbound, one of them, he has also written another wonderful book that was published earlier this year. In the end, it was all about love, which is out now from Rough Trade Books. Paul and I had a discussion about that book, which we both found very enjoyable and very moving. We ended up speaking about racism on the gay scene and also luxism, classism and ageism. And here's a little snippet of our discussion where we talk about how some of these issues intersect. My experience of coming out was very much a kind of, it was like coming out of one closet and going into another one. I was, it really did feel like that to me. It felt like you had to kind of, you were conforming to one ideal before and then you had to conform to another one. And I, I, I didn't, I, I was always resistant to that. I've always been troublesome, you know. 
Um, so you mentioned the other closet, and what was what were the sides of yourself? I mean, you know, you've always uh, in in my working with you, you've always been very sympathetic to women, to trans people, to people of different backgrounds. What part of you did you feel like you had to put away on the gay bar scene? Well, on the when I when I came out, I was. Um, very, I mean, I was always somebody who was quite into fitness. So I kind of was, you know, I was, I was going to the gym when I was 15, just because I was in love with a boy who went to the gym. That's the only reason why, secretly, although I was in the closet. But other, apart from sort of being quite kind of, you know, not sporty, but kind of going to the gym, um, my appearance was, was very flamboyant. And um, I had brightly coloured hair and wore makeup and, and, and earrings. And, and I learned very, very quickly that I wasn't going to get laid if I looked like that. Um, and it was it was it was it was a huge eye opener for me. I mean, it was really I was actually quite horrified. I kind of had this idea that that, um, you know, my ideal man would be a kind of, you know, sort of adamant, <laughs> um, sort of, you know, slightly androgynous and sexy. And and there, there were elements of that. I, mean, I, I, I went to this club called Pyramids, which I posted about yesterday on social media because it was such a hugely important club for me. Um, somebody shared a, um, a flyer online. It was a midweek ni- a night at heaven on a Wednesday, and it was a kind of alternative night. And this is the late eighties, and it was fa- fabulous. But that was that was the first time I'd actually found a gay space that felt like me. Before that, it, I felt very much like I had to conform in order to get in order to be accepted. And conforming meant, you know, frowning upon effeminacy, um, being disparaging about other certain people. Um, not, 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 that I, not that I sort of took part in that, but I just wouldn't, I, I just wouldn't challenge it. So I would just be quiet when I heard someone making those comments. I wouldn't challenge them. Whereas now, of course, I would challenge them. But when you're 19 and you're trying to desperately hard to fit in, I think we have this, this, this naive belief as well, which I, I've written about in the past, but we have this naive belief that you grow up, you, you can grow up closeted, spend, you know, the first... 18 years or whatever it is of your life um, in the closet and then you go to one gay pride event and suddenly everything is rosy I mean that's a, what a ridiculous idea or think of all the think of all the all the stuff that's happened to you and how it's impacted on you in those years before you went to that pride event you're still going to be unraveling that stuff for some years to come and I don't just mean the sim- a simple case of you know internalized homophobia although that's obviously part of it but just that sense that sense of, of isolation and lack of connection learning how to socialize I mean, people are talking now about we're going, we're coming out of out of the lockdowns, hopefully, and people, are, many people I know, are very anxious about how they're going to start interacting again because they've they've kind of lost the habit of doing it. Well, that that's that, that's exactly what it's like when you come out. You have to learn a whole new set of rules, and growing up in South Wales, where you know you you know if you were a boy. You, you weren't meant to be girlish and you weren't meant to be a puff. Those are the two things you had to avoid being like. And I was both of those things. And then trying hard to fit into a gay scene, which was equally as disapproving. It was equally as disapproving at that time. It was, it was very, very regimented. Um, I think it's changed now. And I think, thankfully, younger generations have an easier time of it, probably, in many ways than I did. But I think in the 80s, it was still quite difficult. And I know lots of people who gay men my generation who had a really hard time. Following up from that, we return to Polaria Online, which was recorded in April, and with Musa Okwonga introducing his new memoir, One of Them from Unbound, about his time at Eton College. 
we talked about the memoir in particular quite a lot, and he he did he did stress that actually class was a much bigger issue for him when he was at Eton than race was. But obviously, living as a black man in first in London and then now in Berlin, now in Berlin, um, he he spoke very eloquently about you know what that experience is, feels like and 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 how the culture the the cultural shift that he that he sensed, um, sort of post Brexit Britain. So yeah, it, it it all kind of the conversation was sort of flowed very naturally, and uh, it was interesting how how many how many times each of the writers kind of commented on what the other person had said because they 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 each had they, there was a lot of shared ground in the conversation. But I was also pleased that um, I mean I did I did want Musa on the on the show, but also I was it was you know there's there's a great fun to be had when you're doing a an online event that you can suddenly go. Well, we're now, now we're going to leave London and pop over to Berlin, <laughs> which you can't do in, in South Bank Centre in quite the same way. So um, that was great. So yeah, and 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 Mus, Mus is very. He has this wonderful way of, of. I mean, he, he talked a lot about, in particular, the memoir, and the, the the way that Eton kind of grooms young men to be the leaders of the country. Um, so he talked about David Cameron and Boris Johnson and. He's very good at expressing this kind of very, very controlled rage <laughs> without ever sounding like an angry person. He just expresses it in this very sort of this very righteous way and very and, and he's also very witty. So, it's, you know, it's, it's very it's, it's much better to communicate those emotions with humour, I think. I think it's a much better way of communicating them. And we spoke at length about that and he was very eloquent about it. Now, what can you tell us about your latest book? It's called One of Them, a memoir about my five years at um, English private school, Eton College, attended by David Cameron, Boris Johnson and other conservative politicians. A lot of people talk about Eton and it's a school that's surrounded in mystery. And I think partly because a lot of people that went there either still benefit from it or they're annoyed about upsetting people from that world because If you say the wrong things about that school, then you kind of get cast out. Perhaps as a queer black person, you're kind of (laughs) on the fringes anyway. But um, the reason I wrote this book is because a lot of people criticise Eton. But if you criticise it without the information, then people that went to Eton just brush off and go, oh, that that wasn't what it was like. But I thought, if I give people who are being critical an actual blueprint of what it was like, then that empowers them in their critiques that they have to make. Because I think we can all agree it's a place that needs criticism. Here are some short segments. I'll try and read them quickly. They're about the school, class and race. The first one is called The Lads. There is a way some boys at Eton look at me that I have never seen before. When I annoy someone in my hometown, they make eye contact with me. The fury glistens in their gaze. But at Eton, if I confront one of the more arrogant students who dislikes me, there is a very particular stare they give me. It is a glazed expression, never fully focused, as if they are peering out into the yard at a distant and mildly irritating disturbance, a fox howling somewhere in the dark. Boys who look at me like this belong to a class that everyone refers to behind their backs as the lads, and they seem exempt from generally accepted codes of behaviour. The lads intrigue me from the moment I arrive at Eton. There seem to be between 15 and 20 of them in each year out of 250 students, and they are significantly more confident than everyone else. A handful of the lads have a level of self-assurance which, whenever I'm within their radius, greets me with the force of a stiff breeze. The key thing with the lads 
is that they are impervious to peer pressure and would apparently be as comfortable with having no friends at all as with having 200. The lads are fascinating because they seem to defy all social conventions. I have been told my entire life that it is important to get on with people in order to succeed, but these peers of mine often seem supremely disinterested in that. The lads have one thing in common. Many of those closest to them seem to spend much of their time complaining about them in private, but never say anything to the lads' faces, as if they are afraid of being cast out of Eton's golden enclosure. One of the lads is so hated that during a cricket practice, a stray ball hits him in the middle of the back. And when he has doubled over in pain, one teacher remarks to the other, you wouldn't want that to happen to anyone, but if it hadn't happened to someone, it would be him. My school does not create the lads. They arrive there with the cause of their egos fully formed, but it frequently seems to end up rewarding them with some of the most senior positions in Eton's school body. The boy who is hit with the cricket ball does not go on to become notably nicer, but he does end up as a school prefect. The lads have long ago worked out or been told by their parents that what matters most is not being good natured, but achieving high office. In a system such as Eton's, where the boys are raised to be deferential to those in authority, they know that if they merely gain prestige, then personal popularity will follow. The school's power structure is strange to me. The school prefects are not appointed by staff or elected via secret ballot by their own year, both of which systems would seem far more reasonable. Instead, they are chosen by the prefects in the year above. The result is that if a boy wishes to be socially prominent at school, there are only 20 people in the school whose approval he truly needs. I watch boys campaign for election as school prefects with a vigour that I will later see in the world of British politics. And I will realise that this is the kind of place where these politicians learned it, that this is what they mean by networking. Networking is the art of laughing a little longer and louder than necessary at the jokes of the person whose patronage you seek, of standing silently by their shoulders when they're making a nonsensical argument, of hanging around just in case they need an extra pint, or strategically making sure you are in the same place as them on holiday. It is the least dignified behaviour I can imagine, but I will see boys at Eton carry it out with such ease that it appears to be genetic. I think a great deal about the English concept of fair play. The idea that there are some things that are simply not done. The older I get, the more I wonder how much that concept of fair play was created to keep people of a certain social class in their place. I look at the most confident boys in my year at Eton, and I realise that the greatest gift that has been stowed upon them is that of shamelessness. Shamelessness is the superpower of a certain section of the English upper classes. While so many other people in England are hamstrung by the difference in social embarrassment they've been taught since birth, the upper classes calmly parade onto the streets and boardrooms to claim the spoils. They do not learn shamelessness at Eton, but Eton is where they perfect it. Writing about this now all these years later, how did you relate to your younger self? Writing this book was traumatic uh, to Elizabeth's point, but it was also this incredible thing of like, it was anthropology. Do you know when memories are so perfectly preserved, it's like they've been kept in sort. Yeah. I read my old school reports and I began writing and the memories were perfectly preserved. You know, it's a memoir. So you're being honest about everything, the good stuff and the bad stuff and judging yourself from the eyes of a 41 year old judging a 13 year old is horrifying actually. 
And it's really painful because it's not only painful in terms of the mistakes I made. They weren't that bad. There was a couple, but they were, you know, not proud of. But the worst thing was seeing how vulnerable it was. And the thing I'm proudest of, it sounds really ridiculous. The thing I'm proudest of is that I kept my political outlook and I didn't get seduced by the dogma because, you know, here's the thing, an overwhelming percentage of people that left that school are right wing, hard right. You know, the funny thing is, Paul, the amount of emails I've had from people from Eton already, already, like my best friend from school was like, oh my God, he wrote me an email so emotional that it reduced me to tears. I had to walk around my flat to like calm down. But overwhelmingly, the response has been from teachers at Eton, like the first letter I got from a teacher of Eton, the head of Arabic studies, he was like, this has already had a huge impact. He said, two days after reading it, I read it in a single day. And two days after reading it, someone, a colleague approached me in the street and was like, have you read that new book about Eton? And he was like, yeah, I have. And he goes, this is happening right now. I wanted to make them look in the damn mirror and be like, why have you said nothing? You guys can write open letters about a teacher being sacked for being a misogynist open letters to Eton in the Daily Mail. And where's the open letter about Cameron and, Os- and, Cameron and Johnson? And Johnson? Yeah. Where are those letters? No, it's all self-involved. Where are they? You're looking for black working class students, you know, advertising in the sun, a paper that hates black people. What the hell are you playing at? What the hell are you playing at? And it's all in the book. But the thing is, the book doesn't mention names, as you can see, right? So it's an indictment. So they can read it and be like, oh, we can't think he's not talking about us. Who is he talking about? And the best part of the book is it speaks to the guilty. If you're guilty, it will sting you. And if you're not, you're fine. But I want it to sting people, to be honest. I'm going to go over to Nikita now. Um, Nikita, I last saw you at heaven. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was such a magical night. It was such a magical night. Uh, every, every aspect of it was perfect. Uh, Musa just said about preserving memories and salt. And that's been one of the memories that I've turned to during this year when I've been most upset. And I look back at that day and I'm just like, what a perfect night. What a perfect night. That's something to hold on for. It was literally a few weeks before the world changed. How has it been for you this, this last year? How did you adjust? It's a hard one when you're a writer. You, you do your job in isolation anyway, right? So I think I haven't had the, the fact that I, I'd never had an office life really. That, that, that never existed really for me. What was amazing is that I've actually, I made the big decision to move into my own place. Um, and that's made such a difference because I used to live with like five housemates. Um, and it's been really, it's been really wonderful kind of living on my own and kind of having my own space to work. And yeah, it's, it's been really, it's been amazing, but it's also, there've been so many low points because I've missed my family dreadfully. Um, I've missed seeing my friends. I feel very lucky that I have a lot of author friends and I've been reading a lot of amazing books, Musa's book being one of them. Uh, in the end it was all about love was the first book I read when I moved into this house it really it settled me so much because here's the thing no one tells you when you move in your 30s or your 40s everything hurts like (laughs) (laughs) everything hurts why does no one tell you that your bones literally feel like they're being crushed (laughs) and it carries on for days (laughs) <laughs> no one tells you this <laughs> but yeah it's been it's been um it's been really interesting um it's and I wrote this book uh where hope comes from at the beginning of lockdown and it's the first book which has hit the times bestseller list which was amazing for me so it's been 
it's been a year of many highs and like emotionally many, many lows and mental health wise, many lows. But I'm so grateful to be here and to hear Elizabeth's amazing book and to hear Musa read from this book, which I've been dying to read. And I've been seeing all my friends have got copies and like advanced copies. And I'm just like, no, I want to read this book. I'm so jealous. Um, but yeah, it's amazing to be here. So thank you for having me. <laughs> Back to your book now. So it's called Where Hope Comes From. Um, yeah. Is it fair to say that there is a kind of resilience and an optimism there? Absolutely. I do start out the book talking about despair because I'm a big believer in the fact that you have to feel all of your feelings to get to the point where you can make room for hope and joy. And I think it's something that we all know as, as marginalized people in general, that hope is a thing of action. Hope is a thing that is grown because there's always work to be done. And we definitely know this as activists. There's always work to be done. It's something my grandmother taught me is that when you go through great despair, that's when you see hope. That's when you hold on most to hope. That's when you know hope is needed. And that's what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted to make lots of room for all of those feelings. So I spoke a lot about loneliness and despair. And then I speak about the light and then I speak about joy and I speak about the things you learn from reflecting in isolation. And that's what's been so fun about this book. I feel like it's been really cathartic. It's been hard to write, but it's been cathartic and it's something I've needed because I've been so far away from my family. I'm going to read The Dynamics of Lonely and then I'm going to read something a little more cheerful because they're short poems. On a midnight walk in a forest full of stars, I reconsider the way lonely works, how it gets into the bones of children who grow to be adults with abandonment issues because of an absent parent, how it hardens the heart of people who use it to block someone out of a group, how the cruelest places use lonely as a punishment through solitary confinement, and how we spend our days watching clocks in forlorn buildings waiting for when we can go home to the warmth of love. All this to divide us and conquer. A wolf left alone in the wild is easy prey to. This is why wolves live in packs. They know that community keeps every wolf healthier and safer, each one fulfilling a duty to the other, protecting and nurturing their young to be better. Our strength then lies in numbers. We are wildflowers designed to weather storms and grow in places no one expects us, rising and thriving together. In isolation, I've learned just how important community is. And I began to realize how many communities I was a part of and how lucky I am to be part of those communities. Um, queer communities and you know, South Asian communities and generally communities of color. And we've all moved on to Zoom, you know, like where we have, my friends and I do this like drink and movie night, you know, once a week, or we do like uh, get together like once a month, like a big group of my friends or, you know, and we do it on Zoom. Recently, I went out and met a bunch of my friends in the, in the park. I was able to meet five, five people I care about in the park because that's, that's the rules. And it's all socially distanced, but it, I literally sat and cried for the first five minutes because I didn't realize, and I'm not someone who will do that, but I cried because I met people for the first time and it felt like so long that just, it was so overwhelming that I just burst into tears. 
I'm, I'm glad I wasn't alone doing that, that in, in the group, because that would have been awkward. But it, it really, it really did mean so much to me. And I think a part of me does that thing where I suppress when something's taken away, I suppress my need for it. Mm-hmm. And it's only when you, when you, you kind of are in a safe space to let it go, that you realize what it means. It was hard. It's been hard. And I do need that social interaction. I'm lucky I have friends to talk to. And we're lucky we've got like lots of means to talk to our friends, but that the the environment is different. You know how in a live event, the environment is different. You feed off the audience. It's like, it's like that. (laughs) To finish off the show, the authors then got into the kind of vibrant discussion that Paul mentioned in the introduction, where they talked about some of the themes that had come up over the course of the evening and some questions were fielded from the audience. Musa finished off by talking about how some of the reactions that he'd received to his book had been encouraging and the authors in general spoke about some of the changes that were happening in the world or appeared to be happening in the world and thought about what they might like to see happening in future. One comfort I take is that we have people in our society sensitive enough to see what's coming. And if you can anticipate what's coming, you're ready. And I think... We're a smart society in the UK, but we're in a dangerous position where life is just comfortable enough for us to kind of turn away. But what Absolutely. we don't realise is that society isn't like, it's not, um, things are gra- things are okay and they gradually, then they, then they collapse quickly. They don't, mm. It's like those houses that are built near the cliffs. Mm. They're fine mm. for like 50 years and then like mm. they can collapse almost overnight, if that makes yeah. sense. They can subside almost overnight and it's like that. Mm. Interested by the description of this social way of being that's defined by class, how it's firmed up, preserved by everyone else. Mm. you might think these people may have more to lose, but the uncanny thing for description is seem to worry less about losing it. When you're in a world like that, let's say that you have a drug problem. You can go to Argentina for two, three years and sit on a beach somewhere. Mm. Well, just, you know, sit on a, sit on a, sit on a ranch somewhere in Argentina and dry out and just come back to London. And you've got a job in somebody's hedge fund. Mm. There's a moment after, there's a moment after uni, it was really wild, right? So after uni, we always play football together. Like, you know, the old boys have made, play football in West London. And so we leave uni and I get added to this email list. You're going to come play football music because I was a good footballer at school. And I was thinking, wow, like all these email addresses, I don't recognize them. Like it was like, some had the Gmail address, some had the like, you know, the, the law firm, but a lot of these other people had this weird something, something, at C E T C I E. And I'm like, what's that? What's that? And I was like, what is it? I've never, they were, and I Googled them and they were all single uh, page websites, financial professionals, financial regulators. I'm like, oh my God, they're all hedge funds. This bunch of guys from school have all gone to boarding school. And they've all got jobs in hedge funds, probably without interviews, probably by having a couple of like, you know, boozy lunches in London. And now they're all sorted out for life. Um, that's a world I encountered like very rarely since I left. And if you go to that world and lean heavily into the contacts, you're not only made for life, but your kids can be made for life. Do you think things are starting to crack though? Because I mean, was it a few years ago that the whole uh, deal about internships, you know, like Mm. wealthy people getting, um, you know, uh, jobs where you're not paid but you get amazing experience so then you do get a job in the best companies yeah. um it all came out didn't it that yes. um you know it's all who you know but also you know for people from backgrounds that are economically disadvantaged how would they do those kinds of internships because you know a lot mm. of the jobs are in london it's very mm. expensive to live in london um 
in, I don't know whether that's all gone quiet. You know, no, Elizabeth, you're right. It is changing. It is changing. Do you know why? Look at the A levels storm this summer. Yeah. Because this was the I think this was the first summer that the English middle class realised mm. how willing the upper class was to screw them over. Until then, yeah. it had been the working class, the miners. Or, but now it was like the English middle classes were like, oh, my God, they don't care about the grades of my kids. Yeah. That is a different mobilisation that I saw. I think it yeah. is changing in the UK. I mean, not yeah. quick enough for my liking. Yeah. But look at, look at the royal family, for example. Look at, the, look at the criticism around the Meghan Markle Harry thing, because the average yeah. person looks at that. No matter what they think of the royal families, they're thinking, yeah. what did it take to force apart those two brothers who were so close? It yeah. can't be nothing. Like mm. people can say, oh, Megan's this, but they're like, no, those brothers were really close. Do mm-hmm. we really believe? Because like Harry seems to love Megan. It's re- it seems mm. real. Like, do we really believe that some woman came from outside and drove them apart? The older that, like, you know, the queen basically, and I hate to say it, the queen is basically keeping that thing at its level of popularity. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a, and I don't want to say this in a negative way. It's a very different story 20 years from now. And so I, I think, yeah, Elizabeth, things are definitely changing in terms of the scrutiny and like for Boris Johnson, I don't think you get away with that 10 years from now. I don't think okay. the kind, I don't think the chuck, I don't think the chuckling posh boy, because the full effect of Brexit has not been seen yet. Economically, no. Like we're going to go through a financial crash. It's not going to be funny because all those little all those people are laughing and joking at you. They've got all the mortgages that your kids can't have. 10 to 15 years from now, this is a different conversation. Yeah, it, but it might even be sooner. I mean, I th- what was amazing about last summer was how, despite the COVID laws about, you know, we're nice to be protesting, everyone was out on the streets for yeah. Black Lives Matter because mm. it was just, you know, with the technology now, what's fantastic is people record the news themselves. So if somebody's yeah. being killed by the police, people, we've all got our mobiles out, yeah, you know, yeah. and... Um, I just think, um, I mean, it goes back to that point, but Nikita, you were talking about communities earlier. We have got, you know, there is community building and inter-community building through the COVID pandemic and, and internationally that, you know, that the fact that so many people have died and, um, you know, emergency workers and bus drivers, it's just been incredible that that, you know, people are, basically going on protests often people that didn't mm. used to go on protests that's why mm. i have faith like it's you know it's funny it's mm. like russell t davis in years and years mm. i know it's an optimistic ending but i think he was also right look like i say the messages i've had from etonians i've never received messages from those people mm. never like that the level of introspection people mm. writing to me this is like white upper class englishmen going thank you thank you for saying it i think we can have to draw everything to a close because we're going to run out of time and get booted off soon. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank all three of you. Thank you so much for your time and for your wonderful readings and for contributing to such a really fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all night. Can I just thank, thank everyone you. for tuning in? I want to thank everyone for tuning in because like, obviously it's, you could be anywhere else this evening. Great to like be among like queer community because it's something yeah. I've been missing. So thank you so much everyone. It's interesting because isolation is part of all of our stories and I think potentially we have forgotten about that and forgotten about what some of that isolation might feel like and especially given that you know you and I have always worked in the creative industries as adults even though we were brought up in other towns that weren't London what we often see around us is reinforced by more London media people and potentially we forget or move away from the people we were in our teens for example and it's hard to, it would have been hard to imagine 
this time sort of you know before this all happened what that kind of isolation would feel like for another another adult who is unable to attend something like Polari for all of the the issues and the reasons that you've mentioned well I think I think you know I mean my experience of of going from growing up in a very isolated world in South Wales and moving to London when I was 18 turning 19 and then discovering the gay scene which I didn't even know such a thing existed and you know, the gay scene in those days, it was sort of mixed, but it was mainly gay men and mainly gay men of my age. So most of my social outlets were being surrounded by people that were very like me. There wasn't a, wasn't a lot of diversity. And one of the things that I sort of became very conscious of quite young, actually, was, 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 the, was the lack of diversity and the lack of mm-hmm. the shortage of people who were outside that age group or from different backgrounds you know, I remember, I remember sort of first witnessing racism and, and misogyny in a gay bar and being horrified. I didn't know those things would exist. I, I had this idea that the gay world would be utopian <laughs> um, and being so horrified by that. But also the ageism, which was there, you know, it's still there very much so. And one of the things that Polari's always aimed to do, and I think succeeds to some degree in doing, is 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 breaching that that but those boundaries and actually appealing a, across a wider section of our communities, plural because it's not one community. There's many communities, whether that's to do with you know class background, cultural background, race, age, gender, whatever it might be. I think that's very important, and I think we as we as LGBTQ people need to bear that in mind in terms of how we relate to one another. I think there's oftentimes there's been a tendency in our history to kind of make everything one size fits all. And I think that's something that we're, we've moved away from, thankfully, over the, over, over the last couple of decades. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Polari podcast. The next episode will feature me, Sevilla Blackwell, Polis Luizu and Selena Godden, author of Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. And that should hopefully be up soon. If you like the show, please do take a moment to rate it on whichever platform you choose to listen on. And thank you so much for supporting us. We'll be back very soon.